Hi, and welcome to episode three of The Abnormal Psychologist. In this episode, we're going to discuss what makes for abnormal psychology. Um, you know, this is a really strange time, and I'm not even sure there's such a thing as normal anymore. Uh, we have to draw a diagnostic line somewhere, though, and that's what we're going to discuss today. And sort of a side note, I hate the phrase, the new normal. Um, I was in a meeting with a psychologist, Dr. Hugh Moore, uh, who practices here in Memphis, a few weeks ago, and he talked about how the phrase, the new normal, uh, can be really discouraging to people, right? It's like we're not going to get out of this. It sort of makes people feel helpless and hopeless. Anyways, before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know that there is a virtual 5K race coming up to support a really good cause. Um, it's called the Harwood Dash for Disabilities, and it takes place anytime during the weekend of September 5th and 6th. I think that's Labor Day weekend. Um, you can walk or run anywhere, uh, and the money goes towards the Harwood Center. The Harwood Center is a nonprofit center in Memphis. It provides therapeutic services to children with developmental disabilities. They do really great stuff. Um, there's also some really cool digital events coming up uh, this fall, um, and if they're related to helping folks, I'll try to keep you updated as they arise. Um, this past weekend, I did the Memphis Runs for Autism 5K. And I had a pretty decent run. Uh, again, I'm hoping to do the St. Jude Marathon in December, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, and maybe we can talk about the therapeutic effects of running in a future episode. Very interesting with endogenous opiates and all that. Anyways, again, today's topic is what constitutes abnormal psychology. As with anything related to psychology, it's hard to get all the experts to agree on something, so we're going to have different sort of competing models of abnormal abnormality. Um, the first model that we'll talk about is the self-distress model. And so imagine that most people go and see a mental health expert because they don't feel great, right? Uh, they might feel depressed, they might feel anxious, uh, and they want to change. Um, the self-distress model basically says that there is something um, or something is abnormal because it bothers you, right? It causes pain. Uh, with this model, like if you say you're experiencing debilitating anxiety, you know, who is a therapist or a mental health expert to question it? Uh, most psychological distress is subjective, right? It's hard for somebody else to see. Um, so maybe we should just make diagnoses based off of personal reports, right? You say you feel bad and you get a diagnosis. Uh, now, there are some problems with this model. First off, not every psychopathology involves self-distress, right? There are people with substance use disorders who feel just fine. Uh, they don't have any subjective distress. Uh, but you can ask their family members or you can ask their friends and they'll say they have a disorder. A second problem with this model is that everyone experiences some form of subjective distress at some point in their life, right? Uh, distress can be normal. It's, you know, part of the human condition. It sucks when a family member dies. It sucks when you go through a breakup. Uh, sometimes you almost feel physical pain. We'll talk about psychosomatic pain uh, in a different episode. Uh, but, you know, is this really a diagnosable condition or is it just sort of a normal reaction to something bad happening to you? Uh, a third problem uh, with this model is that certain people may fake bad. They may say they're experiencing self-distress when they really aren't. Uh, and in psychology, we have a term for this. We call it malingering. Uh, they might say they feel bad and need a diagnosis. And unfortunately, diagnosis shopping does exist in the mental health world. Uh, we'll brush on this in a future episode when we discuss uh, factitious disorder. Um, so that's the self-distress model. A second model is the deficit model. This means you lack something when compared to most people. So for example, with the diagnosis of intellectual disability, uh, which used to be called mental retardation, 
um, up until 2013, you have a deficit in intelligence when compared to the, de uh, the general population. Or with major depressive disorder, maybe you lack enjoyment, have a deficit of happiness when compared to the general population. Or like on the molecular level, right, with depression, maybe you lack the neurotransmitter serotonin when compared to the general population. The deficit model, model might work well for certain disorders, like with intellectual disorder, ID, or major depressive disorder. But it doesn't work well for others, right? It's more difficult to conceptualize disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder or substance use disorder using the deficit model. Um, a third model is the functional disability model. With the functional disability model, something is not a disorder unless it negatively impacts your everyday life. So you might feel distress, you might lack something, but if it's not affecting your home life, your work life, social life, or school life, it's not considered a problem. And the DSM-5, when, when we start going through it, is going to give a nod to functional disability model um, with its diagnostic criteria for almost every disorder that we're going to talk about. Um, disorders will have a criteria that says something like, the disturbance causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Uh, that's a, that's a must-hit criteria for a lot of disorders. Uh, so with something like intellectual disability, right, you can have a low IQ, say an IQ in the 60s, and not meet criteria for the disorder because you're getting by and life just fine. Uh, if there's no negative impact, there's no real disorder. Um, another model is the prevalence model. And I don't know if I mentioned this in one of the first two episodes, but my wife, Lauren, is an epidemiologist. Uh, we actually met when I was in graduate school. I was a cognitive examiner on a research study that she works on. Um, I've tried to have her as a guest lecturer or a guest uh, speaker on this podcast to talk about her research uh, since it's relevant to psychopathology or even just to talk about COVID, uh, even though technically she's not a virologist, virologist. Uh, but she doesn't seem crazy about the idea. So um, I'm going to try something different. I'm just going to yell downstairs. I'm in my upstairs office right now and see if she'll answer this question. So maybe we could have this new segment called Hey Lauren. Hey Lauren! Lauren! All right, this isn't going to work. <laughs> I think she's ignoring me. Uh, but anyways, I was going to ask her, what's the difference between prevalence and incidence? Uh, prevalence is how many people have a disorder or disease at a, uh, like a certain specified time, the way I understand it. Uh, we talk about prevalence a lot more than incidence with psychopathology. So many of the disorders that we'll talk about have what we call LTP, which is lifetime prevalence estimates. So if something is super prevalent, let's say like pain after a breakup, psychological pain after a breakup, should we call it a disorder, right? Um, for abnormal psychology, maybe something is only a disorder if it's abnormal in the sense that most people don't experience it. So for example, with intellectual disability, uh, it usually involves only about the lowest 3% of intellectual functioning. Um, so that's not very prevalent. If something is super prevalent, though, maybe it's just a normal part of the human condition. Like, you know, being shy is pretty prevalent. Uh, we don't pathologize shyness, or at least not exactly. We'll talk about social anxiety disorder and schizoid personality disorder in a future episode. Um, let's take something relatively rare, like being left-handed. It's not very prevalent, right? Only about 10% of the population is left-handed. Uh, I play golf left-handed, I bat in baseball left-handed, but I do everything else right-handed, so I don't really know what you consider me. I don't think I'm like truly ambidextrous. Anyways, um, based on the prevalence model, right, being left-handed should be a diagnosable condition. It's rare. Um, and also, if we look at the functional disability model, in some ways, right, we live in a right-handed world. Um, the mouse in computer labs, uh, if it's a wired mouse, is for right-handed people. Scissors are for right-handed people. 
Um, it can also be distressing being left-handed. Uh, when we talk about schizophrenia, uh, people with schizophrenia are disproportionately more likely to be left-handed than right-handed. Uh, so maybe we should have a diagnosis for lefties. Um, another example, what about being redheaded? Uh, people with red hair are relatively rare, right? And they're more likely to get sunburn, and that can be distressing. So why not make this a diagnosis? Um, you can see this can quickly get philosophical. So we talked about intellectual disability involving only about the lowest 3% in intellectual functioning. Not very prevalent. On the flip side, though, should we consider a diagnosis for the top 3% of intellectual functioning, like a genius disorder? Um, genius certainly isn't that prevalent. And it can be debilitating, right? With social difficulties and feeling like no one understands you. Why not make this a diagnostic ca category? Um, and coincidentally, in the state of Tennessee, being intellectually gifted is considered a special education uh, eligibility category um, by the Tennessee Department of Education. So interesting. It sort of is a disability in Tennessee, uh, but not by DSM-5 standards. Uh, anyways, we could also compare people to others in your culture, right? If something is abnormal in your culture or what we call maladaptive, maybe that makes for a disorder. Um, I'll dedicate an entire episode to cultural conceptualizations of psychopathology later. Uh, and one of the things I'm really excited about in the upcoming week, I'm attending, I say attending, but it's virtual, um, a continuing education session uh, on Thursday night with the Memphis Area Psychological Association, MAPA, called um, White Healers, Black Souls, Treating Racial Trauma in the Time of Ahmed Aubrey. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And I'm really excited about this session uh, and I'll try to report back on what I learn in a future episode. All right, let's get to some other models. So we have models of disability that relate to certain psychological paradigms like behaviorism, cognitive psychology, humanistic psychology, and interpersonal psychology. Uh, so according to a behavioral model, right, a behaviorist model or behaviors might ascribe to a behavioral model, um, which means that a disorder involves behaviors or symptoms that you can see and you can count. For example, like with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, right, we might be able to count how many times somebody fidgets in a 30-minute period. Um, and we can compare those fidgets to the average number of fidgets for a person and decide whether it meets some sort of diagnostic threshold. Or with, say, like alcohol use disorder, we could come up with an observable behavior. We could say that having more than 10 alcoholic beverages in a week, and I'm just making this up, uh, but that would, be an, uh, that would be an observable behavior, constitutes a disorder. Again, this model has its shortcomings. Um, there are certain psychopathologies where it's really hard to see, uh, to observe and account the symptoms, right? Someone might feel super, super high in anxiety in a social situation, have super high levels of self-distress, and nobody else will be able to see it. Uh, or the number of behaviors that would constitute a disorder, right, might not be the same for everybody. To a certain extent, it's kind of relative, right? Like with the alcohol example, 10 drinks for a 250-pound man might be different than 10 drinks for an 80-pound woman. And we also have the cognitive model, which says that something could be diagnostic if it involves a disordered pattern of thinking. So with depression, the famous psychologist Aaron Beck, he's known for being a cognitive psychologist, um, or for cognitive therapy, uh, defined depression as being negative thoughts about yourself, the world, and the future. Or with anxiety, maybe we have thoughts that are mistaken. We call these cognitive distortions. And the key to therapy with this model would be to address and fix these maladaptive thought patterns. Since a large number of people who study psychopathology are physicians, like psychiatrists, the medical model can be used to diagnose psychopathology. So 
um, with a medical model, maybe there are diagnostic tests that can reveal whether you have a psychopathology or not. Uh, they could look for biomarkers. So biomarkers are biological indicators of a condition. We could measure serotonin in someone with depression or dopamine in someone with schizophrenia or the stress hormone cortisol in someone with PTSD. Or maybe we could look at genetics. We might be able to find the gene for certain disorders like trisomy 21 with Down syndrome. By the way, you're not going to find Down syndrome in the DSM-5. Although a significant number of people diagnosed with intellectual disability that we sort of talked about earlier will have Down syndrome. Uh, but unfortunately, most psychological disorders aren't going to have clear-cut biomarkers. There aren't any what we call pathognomonic or surefire smoking gun indicators of mental disorders. Uh, so, so many models, right? Uh, I get lost in them all. Um, another model you might run into is the stress diathesis model. This one is really popular with depression and with certain other disorders. With this model, you have a diathesis, which is a fancy name for a predisposition or vulnerability for a certain condition. Um, When you pair the diathesis with an environmental stressor, this leads to psychopathology. So maybe you have a genetic predisposition, a diathesis for depression. Many people do, and many of these people don't get full-blown depression. You can look at somebody like Ernest Hemingway, who had a high familial risk for depression. He did have major depressive disorder, by the way. Um, But when you combine this diathesis, this genetic predisposition with some sort of stressor, like maybe the death of a parent or a romantic breakup, that precipitates or leads to the disorder, right? Certain pathologies uh, or psychopathologies may be more diathesis-driven or involve more genetic predisposition. We'll talk about this with every disorder um, that we talk about in future episodes. Like schizophrenia, which is highly genetic, that might lead to the disorder in the absence of any stressor. Or others might be more stressor-driven. I think about post-traumatic stress disorder. You might experience a heavy trauma without any predisposition for the condition. Uh, Although there is a genetic predisposition for PTSD. We'll talk about uh, the whole episode on PTSD in the future. So with the stress diathesis model, it's the interaction of the diathesis and the stress that leads to the disorder. And since we're talking about predispositions and diathesis, uh, let me introduce a couple of other terms. For just about every disorder that we're going to talk about, I'll mention risk factors for the disorder. Risk factors make a disorder more likely to occur. Uh, They can be genetic or they can be environmental. And then on the flip side, and psychologists don't do a great job of talking about these, uh, we have protective factors, which make a pathology less likely to occur or can buffer the effects or severity of the pathology. So let's take something like um, adolescent delinquency, which isn't a diagnostic condition per se in the DSM-5, but it goes along with uh, diagnoses of oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder. So with adolescent delinquency, uh, research shows that risk factors would include early aggressive behavior, uh, lack of parental supervision, substance abuse, poverty, drug availability. And then we have protective factors, uh, which would include having high self-control, having increased parental monitoring, um, higher academic competence, and having a strong neighborhood attachment. And to me, it's so interesting how certain people can have all of the risk factors in the world stacked against them, yet manage to never have that condition. It's not deterministic like that. Um, I also find sort of counterintuitive risk and protective factors um, interesting, the ones that don't seem to make much sense on the surface. Uh, One being, so adolescent marijuana use is often thought to be and has been shown by research to be a risk factor for many different things. 
but I was actually looking at a data set last year and uh, that data set indicated that using marijuana in a social setting with friends as a teenager might actually be a protective factor against suicide, which kind of goes against other marijuana research. Maybe it's the social aspect of it. I don't know. Again, sort of interesting, and I'm definitely not advocating for adolescent marijuana use, um, by the way. Okay, so we discussed a ton of models, and none of them seem perfect. Um, luckily, maybe we could think of all of the preceding models, maybe not as competing with one another, but as complementing one, one another. Um, and so enter the biopsychosocial model. So this model has been around since 1977, um, which was 10 years before I was born, uh, when it was introduced by psychologist George Engel, or he was actually a psychiatrist. He was a, a medical doctor. And uh, Engel introduced it with a sort of parable about snow shoveling, uh, which I'll admit I'm probably not paraphrasing perfectly. Um, but it goes something like this. There's a, there's a middle-aged man who goes down to shovel snow in his driveway during the wintertime and ends up having a heart attack and dying. And this happens more often than you think. Uh, there tend to be spikes in cardiac events when it snows due to snow shoveling. And the man is brought in for an autopsy and the coroner finds extensive artery blockage and rules the cause of death as a heart attack. So pretty straightforward, right? Um, if the man were still alive to fix this, a physician might change his diet, prescribe blood thinner, blood pressure medication, or cholesterol medication like Lipitor or something. I don't know. I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, but Engel would say this is a pretty narrow-minded approach. Um, this all just took biology into account. What about psychological and social causes? So we dig deeper and find this middle-aged man was feeling some low-grade depression. He didn't feel as manly as he once did. And he was sitting on the couch watching a football game during the snowstorm. Uh, he had also been having frequent arguments with his wife. Uh, they hadn't been as intimate as they once were, uh, which sort of threatened his virility. Uh, and he also felt like she's been nagging him a lot lately. So his wife comes into the den and says, if you were a real man, you'd be out uh, shoveling snow to clear the driveway for your wife and kids. Um, and, you know, for somebody that is really comfortable with themselves, they might just shrug that off. But this comment really hit home uh, because of his low-grade depression and his threatened masculinity. Uh, so he says, I'm going to show you. And he goes out, shovels snow, and then dies of a heart attack. The medical treatments that we talked about earlier are just one piece of the puzzle. Maybe this man's life could have been saved through psychotherapy, you know, addressing his depression, or through couples therapy, addressing relationship issues. Maybe his depression made him more vulnerable to eating unhealthily, right? Um, which in turn spiked his cholesterol. Engel's point was that far too often physicians only look for medical explanations. And this is why he came up with the biopsychosocial model. In the biopsychosocial model, uh, which can be applied to any pathology, not just psychopathologies, the bio deals with stuff like genes, anatomy, neurotransmitters, the immune system, uh, a lot of different physical things. While the psycho deals with thoughts, feelings, beliefs, behaviors, personality, motivation, intelligence. And then the social deals with family, relationships, community, culture, acceptance, and even things like availability of resources. So when we're talking about something like a heart attack, we can't just look at cholesterol levels or genetic risk. Um, that's too simplistic. We need to get integrated with the bio, the psycho, and the social. Uh, we might have to look at the entire community instead of just at the sort of the genetic level. Uh, we might have to look at cultural context in which the person lives. Uh, and what's really cool is you could even apply the biopsychosocial model to something like COVID-19. Anyways, 
that draws a close to this episode. Uh, time to check the mailbag, and once again, it's disappointingly empty. Please send any questions or comments you have to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu uh, with the subject line mailbag. Um, in the next episode, we'll do an overview of common forms of therapy. So until then, stay well and take care.